0: Hello, and welcome back to the European Review of History podcast. My name is Dr. Ruby Rutter, and this is episode five of our Digital History series, where we're looking at how technology and digital innovation are influencing our understanding of the past and shaping our practice of history as a discipline. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Ian Garner, a historian and analyst of Russian culture and war propaganda, whose publications include Stalingrad Lives, Stories of Combat and Survival, and most recently, Z-Generation, Into the Heart of Russia's Fascist Youth. Today, we're going to discuss how modern Russian propaganda utilises both social media and historical mythmaking to spread its message about its position in the world. It is worth noting, however, that this episode was recorded in December 2022. And so any developments in the Ukraine conflict that have occurred since will naturally not be discussed. Welcome to the podcast, Ian. Thank you so much for joining us. Good afternoon. So I wonder if you might like to start things off by telling us a little bit more about your research interests and your work in general.
1: That's a big question to get started with, because I've sort of ranged around the field over the last decade and a bit. Um, So I I suppose if I had to boil it down to one thing that I'm really interested in, it is what makes Russians tick? And way back when, when I was choosing what my undergraduate degree was going to be, I, you know, as a 17 year old tick the box, I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll take Russian, why not? thinking, well, you know, Russians Russians look the same, they feel the same as us, and they feel like they're European. This was, you know, in my suburban London teenager's eyes, at least way back when. And yet they seem so very different, and there's so much different going on there. So what what is it about the Russian mindset, the Russian soul, if you're going to be all poetic about it, that's different? Why is it that Russians, and of course this is so pertinent today, think the way that they do about the world, and, you know, as I progressed through living in Russia and the undergraduate degree and the master's, it really struck me. And this is, this is unsurprising because it's true of so many cultures that so many of the cultural touchstones and the most important myths in the culture, the most important parts of the social identity and the social fabric in Russia relate to war. And you know, of course, we know that we think about England. We can think about the Blitz spirit, for example, as being something that's often referenced. But in Russia, these things seem so much more pronounced. They really do occupy a swathe of a swathe of popular culture that appeals to different demographics as well, different age groups, and has done for a long time in a way that is really quite distinct from in the West. So that's what's really motivating me. Whether I'm writing books about. Stalingrad and thinking about World War II, or as I've just written, another book thinking about the current war and the militarizing tendencies in young Russians today.
0: Is this something that emerged during the Soviet and post-Soviet era specifically, or is this something that has been long ingrained in Russian cultural consciousness for centuries?
1: I mean, if if you take the cultural consciousness out of the equation a little bit, Russia is a state that seems to have been constantly, and, and again true of many other states, constantly at war over really the entirety of its existence. But often, and when we put back this question of cultural consciousness in a way that's portrayed as if the latest war is always a war for the very survival, not just of Russia as a territory, as a political entity, but for the survival of Russianness as an idea. And in particular, that comes from, and I apologize because some people will know this already, but it's it's so fundamental, it needs to be said, that dates back to the sort of late medieval or transition to the post-medieval era when Constantinople fell to the Ottoman Empire. And Russia was the sole remaining Orthodox power. Because, of course, you know, Western Europe was all Catholic and therefore heathen. Russia was surrounded by Muslims and had been attacked by Muslims and heathens from the East and from the South. Now it was Moscow all against everybody else. And thus was born the idea of what is called Moscow, the Third Rome. Moscow will somehow, somehow has this messianic mission to save the world, to save Christianity and civilization. And even in those few sentences, you can start to see echoes in the present, right? When we hear the language that is that is being used in 2022 to talk about the war, to talk about the idea that they want to destroy Russia. the world is full of russophobes, and even Russia is full of secret russophobes who are, you know, sort of dirty dealing and underhanded people. And then that's, you know, that kind of war, that kind of notion is echoed throughout the 19th century with Napoleon, who was of course the Antichrist, supposedly. And Russia, once again, gloriously saved the day. And that's that's not a story that's taught in British education systems, of course, in British schools where Waterloo was the important battle in the Russian canon, but Adino was the important battle in 1812, which the Russians actually kind of didn't win. But that's a question for another day. It's enough that they, they declared that, that they'd won. And after that, Napoleon didn't advance any further. And then, of course, the big one, the Second World War, when supposedly Russia sacrificed millions of people to save the world
0: so actually that does put a lot of stuff into context specifically of the information that we've been you know exposed to over the last year or so um and this is not my area at all so all i know about about the conflict in ukraine and and russia's approach to it is what i've heard from from the media and i think that the overriding question that most people in the west who haven't maybe paid particular attention to Russia is a sort of bafflement you know why are they doing this why is this happening Um, being unable to understand the justification for it but you putting it into context like that you do understand a little bit better how ordinary Russians could be on board with what's going on and that's of course not to say that there's a justification for it but I just mean in terms of them understanding it and it, it feeding into how they understand themselves as as Russians. Um. So we have already touched on it. But I, I wonder if you could just elaborate a little bit on the the continuities and similarities, as well as the differences that you see in the way the Russian state uses propaganda now, um, and versus how they did in the past.
1: Absolutely, you know, and, and without trying to make Clumsy historical comparisons, which I now probably will. But if we if we try to conceive of the way that the war is represented as being something that is, or the way that the war is understood by ordinary Russians, as something that is purely a mediatized experience, right? The overwhelming and vast majority of Russians experience the war in some way through the television, through the internet, and through other mediums that prevent them actually being directly there, right? They're not there touching the war and feeling the war, right? And this is a slight simplification, and there's really awesome scholarship happening right now about the extent to which, well, mediatization actually is a part of war and becomes a part of fighting thanks to things like open intelligence and all that sort of stuff. But when we think about narratives, well, the Russian state has made a really deliberate and conscious choice to amplify certain historical narratives about the war. Some of them I've already touched on, but really, I think it comes down to this question around the Second World War. And here, when we when we see and when we get often get frustrated, or we hear people in the Western media kind of getting frustrated about it doesn't make sense the way the government is using the past or using history in Russia, because they're lying about it. But what they're not really trying to do is present history in the sense of, or in the sense that you and I would understand it. They're trying to present a quasi-religious, mythological kind of approach to the understanding of time. And interestingly, actually, if you look into the, the sorts of people that folks on the far right in America are reading, Steve Bannon and people like that are reading and talking about they're talking about the same ideas and the same notions of time, right? And the Russian government presents this, and, and this is why in my new book has sort of argue there's a fascistic element to this, the idea that somehow Russia has lost something. It's lost something essential to itself in the present. And the only way to get it back is through fighting and through destruction, through a, a purification of the country through war. And when we think about the Second World War, really the overarching narrative is the idea, and this is why Stalingrad is so central to the Second World War, the overarching narrative is the idea that Stalingrad wasn't just a regrettable sacrifice. It's not how unfortunate that a million people on our side died. It's the idea that Stalingrad itself died, and those million people had to die to save the world right, to somehow bring about this sort of mythical utopia. And this is quite um, detached from rationality, in a sense. But this is ultimately a sort of transposed version of the Christian myth, the Passion of the Christ, right? It's not just bad that Jesus died. The argument in the Bible is that he had to die. There was simply no other choice. There was no other way around it, right? And so the idea today seems to be somehow, and of course, when you poke hard at the logic, well, not even very hard, none of it makes any sense, the idea that somehow the country has to go through this period of turmoil in order to be renewed. And I, and I think ultimately, this is probably why a lot of people still believe that the war, they're frustrated with the prosecution of the war because they're annoyed that their brother and their son is dying at the front or has been sent off with bad training. But they still speak in the language of this this war. And it's come down to them. Sorry if I'm getting ahead of ourselves. It's come down to them through snippets of language and narrative and phrases from movies, from popular culture, from books, from poems, from songs. That To go back to the point that I began this rather lengthy answer with, that the government has deliberately amplified in this cult of World War II. It's taken the stuff that works, And it has filled the airwaves with this stuff by funding new blockbuster films, like really big budget, high quality and good productions. And they're mocked in the West, but they're good. Right. And Russians love them. They like them. Not all of them. Some of them are crap and some of them don't go down too well. But that's filmmaking for you. Right. Songs, parades. These are centers of belonging and ways to perpetuate through ritual these narratives again it's a very sort of quasi-religious approach to spreading this language
0: so russians and, and by that i mean the collective i know that there are plenty of individual russians who fiercely oppose um what's going on but the culture's sort of been primed with this idea um so there's almost a baseline a standard position that someone might take when these sorts of conflicts emerge and that they Naturally, understand them through through this lens that you're talking about, and so even before they've been able to sort of employ any kind of critical thinking, there's a sort of um, a leg up for the state, I guess that that, that the default position might be skewed towards uh, believing this propaganda.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and what's really interesting, I read a great piece of research. There was a researcher in. Berlin at um it has a really long german name but zeis z o i s which is the center for east european studies his name is felix Kravatsek and he does great work in english not just in german and he read he wrote this report in it was just before the war i think started where he'd studied the ways that russian young russians were talking about the past and the second world war and the state and What's notable is that lots of young Russians would say, I'm apolitical, I don't really approve of the state. And yet they still were fully conversant in sort of speaking this language of war, they could pull out these mythical narratives of the second world war. And they would talk about how important it was to remember their grandfather's sacrifices, right? So even though they may not identify as being Putinist subjects, are nonetheless speaking the language of putinism
0: wow that's fascinating and so obviously this podcast is about digital histories and and we briefly spoke before when we were setting up this interview about the use of social media in the dissemination of propaganda today um and i just wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the things that you're seeing happening in relation to this historical myth making and the sort of twisting of historical narratives, because you're very active on Twitter and I regularly see you sharing examples of how Russian propaganda is operating online. And it's this little window into a part of the internet that I think most people in the West uh, don't access or, or would not know how to access.
1: So the state has been really keenly aware, especially since about 2010, and that's that's pretty rough, but about 2010. It's been really care, keenly aware of how important social media is towards its indoctrinating or ideologizing project. There's a couple of reasons for that. Putin was spooked by all the color revolutions ar- around the world in 2012, but also in the previous decade in Ukraine, in Georgia, and Kyrgyzstan, which you know, the Russian state would consider its backyard, its sphere of influence. And so Putin was was worried that digital culture would have an impact. Then in 20, 2011, there was a huge wave of protests in Russia itself. And that was when Alexei Navalny first rose to prominence, really. Um, and the organizers used digital media basically without without too much harassment from the Russian state, without too much blocking and trolling and things like that. And they were able to create alternative centers of power. And by speaking freely and being able to say whatever they want in Facebook groups, VK, which is the, effectively the Russian version of Facebook, not state owned at the time, although it is now owned by state proxies, they were creating alternative worlds, right? Alternative narratives and feeding young people with very different stories about the world and feeding young people's minds up with different language so that they didn't necessarily speak the language of Putinism. And so what the state has done since then has been a sort of multi-pronged approach to spreading its messages. The first is a sort of violent attack on freedom on the internet increasingly so over the last few years, and probably most people will be aware of this. We're hearing about independent journalists being targeted, being blacklisted, being driven out of the country, beaten, arrested, news websites shut down, um, VPNs being banned, although the Russian state is very incompetent when it comes to technology and it's not actually very good at banning anything. Um, But, you know, all that sort of stuff. So closed down access to, to free information. It's also gone on the attack by flooding opposition spaces with trolls and bots and essentially making them diluting their messages and making it harder to find their messages or to trust their messages. But I think what's most interesting and and is probably most unknown to people is the extent to which the state has adopted a new media strategy that takes its sort of somewhat Soviet-style youth groups and turns them into digital entities that are supposed to be more appealing to children. Now, these things are not very appealing to millennials because millennials grew up back in the good old days before 2010, when all things were possible, right? And you could argue maybe they weren't possible, but it seemed like they were possible to lots of people who are now in their thirties or give or take a few years. But today you can go and join youth groups online there are a couple of big ones. The youth army is the child soldiers who wear the red shirts and the red berets that lots of people might have seen. There's now over a million child soldiers. I think the number is currently one point two nine million. And that's for kids aged six to 18. And they do traditional paramilitary youth group activities. It's Cub Scouts with guns. They go camping in the forest. They do physical activities. They they get history lessons in a sort of traditional kind of a cross- classroom. And they do real real military prep, so they learn to use guns. But there is a whole online aspect to this. There is an app that you can download. You can join up with an app. I did it myself, it was very easy. You take a selfie, that's your ID card. You fill in your details, a couple of days later, bang, you're in, right? In the app, you can do challenges and quests to win prizes. The more points you collect the more chance you have of winning a prize there are forums and discussion groups the app hasn't quite taken off yet it's still relatively new but on their vk page on their telegram pages they're running competitions for kids right they're running you know you and your youth army brigade go film a video of yourself doing something state cool you know talking about world war ii and do it in a kind of a TikTok style so there is a real embrace of forms that are appealing to kids dances and you know pumping hip-hop beats and all that kind of stuff but we're indoctrinating you at the same time so this isn't just when we think about the russian state and propaganda we tend to think of oh this is just all gray old men doing boring stuff boring classrooms nobody cares but they're finding new ways to reach kids. Another group, Victory Volunteers, this was founded about, I think, in, yes, it was 2015. So it's the, what is that, the 70th anniversary of the end of the Second World War, and Victory Volunteers is always about all about, quote-unquote, preserving the memory of World War II and creating the future generation. There are about 300,000 people who are involved. They go to parades, they do memory activities, they visit sort of historical exhibitions, conferences, all that sort of stuff. And again, there is a whole online element of hashtags, discussion boards, places where you can find community and like-minded people. And these groups are sort of rallied around state operatives who are also sort of playing the role of influencers. So people, people who are young, who are athletes, who are photogenic younger politicians, are the nominal leaders of these groups, although, of course, how much say they really have over what the group does is pretty dubious. But these are the sorts of people that are much more interesting to kids than, you know, Uncle Putin says this, that, or whatever, nobody cares. But when some gymnast or skier or 32-year-old politician who, you know, is posting selfies and here's what I did today and here's what I had for dinner and here's the takeout I got, oh, and also, guess what I'm doing this Sunday? I'm going to the youth group event. That's appealing in a very different way, and it just spreads this language throughout the culture.
0: Where we might think of propaganda as being something that's predominantly state-created or state-produced, actually what's happening here is almost like a kind of propaganda pyramid scheme where you, you, know, you recruit five people and they recruit five people and you're all creating this content online. Um, to be shared and spread as as far as possible so I guess it's a kind of outsourcing of content creation that will make it even harder to undo or unpick because people are not only exposed to these messages but they're also thinking about ways that they can communicate them further um, so especially with children that feels like something that's going to be incredibly hard to to try and undo and um, so when you see these identities emerging, would you say that they are generating something new that perhaps has some roots in the past? Or is it very much just looking back and trying to recreate an old Russia? I think
1: I I would say that on the surface, the way that it's presented is consistently that we we're recreating an old lost Russia. But like all sort of fascist pasts, It's not really creating a past that ever existed. When you think about, and everybody's going to hate this because it's a lazy comparison, but Nazi Germany, what was it trying to recreate from the German past? Well, something that never really existed, you know, all these sort of heroic tales of medieval knights and bits and and pieces of the 19th century, in addition to creating the new perfect Aryan being. And and I think there is an element of that today where we're trying to recreate russia as a sort of a notion of strength a notion that is extremely macho that has bits and pieces of the czarist past past but also makes space for the the soviet era right where you can be highly orthodox but also a big fan of Stalin, which you know the two things can't go together one bloke was blowing up all the churches in the country and murdering thousands of priests and the other is the church. But of course, the church in Russia today is totally on board with all of this and isn't really a Christian church in any meaningful sense of the word. But what the state does really brilliantly, perhaps brilliantly is the wrong word, but what it does masterfully is recognize that the that Russianness, it says Russianness is one thing, but it is constantly expanding and sort of inflating and deflating bubbles of what it can be to be Russian, depending on what is convenient on any given day. So there are a whole bunch of extreme religious nationalists in Russia, right? And then there are a bunch of old communists. So they all find something that they can grab at in this culture. And the nature of social media, I think, makes this easier for the state to achieve. Because you can join the VK group that is right for you. And it's going to contain elements of the Soviet past, but it might be majority sort of extreme nationalist Orthodox Christian. And conversely, you can join the group that's 90 percent communist, but a bit of the czarist past. Right. So you can just find these sort of overlapping identities or bubbles of identity. And these things constantly gently intrude on one another as you know your brother or your uncle or your sister or your daughter likes a post on VK or shares a post on VK. But the extent to which these things can't really add up never becomes obvious, I think. Because the the full sort of the falsity, the Patyomokin village nature of the identity is really hard to perceive when you're on the inside because you just keep snatching at these little snippets of language and identity and memes and videos that make sense to you. And all the government has to do is drip bits and pieces from time to time into this media sphere and people will pick up on it and amplify it
0: so in essence russian identity can be something that's at once completely personal and shared um completely fluid but also quite rooted to to the few main sort of principles of putinism as long as the individual is adhering to those those main principles and the overall idea that the state is is wanting to disseminate that is is enough i suppose to carry these messages
1: yeah absolutely and th- there are a few central pillars to it and that is clearly language ethnicity and you can be an ethnic minority and be a Russian, but you have to be constantly striving to make yourself more ethnic Russian. And that's that's the that's the way that they include, if you can call it, including Buryats and Chechens who recognise that Russian culture is the supreme culture. And you know how many Buryat authors are on the school curriculum? Well, I can tell you, the answers. Probably zero. I'd be willing to put money on it being zero. But it's certainly not, you know, the reams and reams of great Russian authors of the past that kids have to read. Macho and masculine identities are there. That The so-called traditional family is there. And the Russian government is trying to sort of make these things more concrete, especially in the educational sphere. There are a whole new series of patriotism lessons that are being taught every Monday morning in every school in Russia this year. They're called conversations about important things. And you can go and download the content from the Ministry of Education's website. Everyone's getting the same content and they touch on things like nationality, touch on things like opposition to the West, opposition to Poland, opposition to Ukraine. They touch on the supremacy of the Russian language, the supremacy of the family. And they're all beautifully done. Nice sort of Instagram light, smiley, soft focus videos with plinky plonky happy music in the background.
0: I mean, even even the the titles are very appealing. As a child, you're always desperate to be allowed to join in with the the grown ups' conversation, and so you know conversations about important things would be would be really
1: alluring. You know, you You're a six year old. You go into class. Now then, children, let's talk about something important. Not it's not menacing or scary. Although actually, the content has been quite scary. There's been some reports in the Western media of some really sort of graphic descriptions coming out of these things of the war of Ukrainians shooting up Russian families in Donetsk and Donbass and other, other such horrible things. So, you know, teachers take these things and add their own little spins, but in principle, everything is being centrally produced.
0: Do you think the fact that the horrible elements to, to this children's content um, are becoming more common in Speaks to a certain insecurity in the state that they're feeling the need to ramp up this messaging, or do you think it's just another stage in this overall indoctrination program?
1: I, I think there are two elements to this. Firstly, there is there is clearly a fear that they don't have enough soldiers. That children of the previous generations haven't been ideologically active enough, and we see that right with all the millennials. I like, sob this. I'm not going to your war. And therefore a recognition that we need we need to train children to be more active, not as political activists, but active as subjects and recognize their Putinist subjects in a more overt way. But the second part really is the nature of the ideology in Russia today and that is and this is this is I think contestable, but I I, I would make this argument that Russian part of Russian fascism, as I call it, is the idea that war is peace and that through war comes renewal. And to fight a war, you always need bodies, both bodies to fight on your side and bodies to be killed. And they need to train people in this military mindset. And they're starting early. And the message consistently in these youth groups, in the youth army, in schools, is that all Russians are good and all things outside of Russia are bad inherently. And that's why liberals are bad, queers are bad. Um, ethnic minorities are bad because these are all not quite Russians but the best kind of Russian the best Russian you can be is to be like your grandfather or in reality your great or great great grandfather who died who sacrificed himself in the name of this sort of great civilization or holy messianic conflict to save the world right that is understandably that is an extremely hard sell which is why they're really starting to wrap this up.
0: So really an understanding of, of history and Stalingrad in particular is fundamental to understanding the way that these identities are being formed and encouraged. And I suppose there is a latent public appetite to consume or accept these messages, maybe because simply just because they're familiar. Um, or is this something that we're not completely able to ascertain in terms of its popularity, just because information about Russian worldviews is so unclear to those outside and, and obviously, of course, inside the state.
1: The question of public appetite is a really vexed one. For those of you who followed the whole horrible debate around opinion polls and how much they can be trusted in Russia, but clearly, clearly there is some considerable degree of appetite. Yes, there is an extreme wing of people who are really rabid warmongers who are extremely racist and know it and recognize it and state it openly but then i think that there is a a murky middle where people are very comfortable with these narratives around world war ii this sort of cult-like quasi-religious idea and comfortable with the idea that russia is perpetually under threat from the west and perpetually under threat from foreign powers and we need to act now that everybody abroad or many people abroad are russophobes and we need to be ready to defend ourselves now the the question of what to do about it is a different question entirely right and many cosmopolitan parents in living in moscow and petersburg are very uncomfortable with the idea of the youth army they don't want their kids going to war but do they hate what the youth army necessarily stands for in terms of defending history defending the past perhaps not right In terms of what's going to happen when, let's say, Putin dies tomorrow or the regime collapses, what really concerns me is that we are looking at a generation of children who are growing up in this highly ideologized environment, who are being fed these narratives, who are going to speak more fluently in this language of well, we may not call it Putinism, but this language of war, this language of militarism, and they are going to cite and position themselves in communities and create identities using this sort of material, even if they and their parents may not see themselves as politically active subjects. And that leaves us us with a a real problem, because Russia is not going to turn into a democracy overnight the experts are are pretty unanimous that whatever comes after putin is going to be the same or worse and therefore what do you do about a problem like this well that is that is a problem that we have to deal with as much as russia because this is not going away
0: recently with um two-factor authentication being turned off on twitter I think there have been reports of certain Ukrainian users being unable to access their accounts or at least having difficulty doing so. Um, if Russia are using social media to disseminate these myths and narratives, presumably that also means they have the means to suppress opposing worldviews too. Um, is that is it that there's another war being fought for online territory and ideological or historical hegemony? Or is it simply... How propaganda has always acted, and this is just a different
1: medium. I think propaganda has always, to a certain extent, acted this way. But what's become much more important is what Jacques Halot, who was a French philosopher or theorist writing in the 1960s, called horizontal propaganda. And that is not the propaganda that's shared directly from the state or the center of power to you, but the, the propaganda that you would share with people on your level, so with your friends or family or stuff like that, that's become much more important and that is a boon to nationalism and authoritarian states because they don't have to do all of the dirty work for themselves. But it also means these narratives will continue to perpetuate after the state ceases to exist. And Part of the battle then has to be recognizing, and the Ukrainian state recognizes this and has done for a long time ever since 2014 and the Maidan and Crimea really, is that they have to go into Russian spaces spaces, and try and influence Russians back again. And I think in the West, we've been very weak on this. In the last few years, we've sort of left it to Russians to discover things for themselves, but we cannot speak to Russians using the language of rationality it's not enough to simply you know broadcast the bbc for example to russians and say well here here are the objective facts here's what's actually happening because people who believe this mythical stuff people in cults tend to knee-jerk react and say well no you must be the one that's lying I don't really trust the government that much. And, you know, here, somebody from the murky middle might be talking. I don't really trust the Russian government that much, but I certainly don't trust the BBC and the Western governments because you're outsiders. And the strength of the Russian digital strategy is in using social media to create this horizontal propaganda. But it's also the great weakness because their networks are perfectly open to people interfering from abroad. Russians on TikTok, there's nothing the Russian government can really do to stop any other government spreading anything they want online and going and targeting young Russians. Even in Russian social networks like VK or on Telegram, which is owned by a Russian citizen. Or actually, he may, he may have renounced his Russian citizenship now, but it's based abroad. Dorof, who is the founder, is not beholden to the Russian state. He has several other citizenships. We can go in there and mess with their. Telegram groups, right, in a way that would have been, to go to your question about propaganda of the past, that would have been unthinkable in the Soviet era.
0: So there is perhaps a route through, there are ways that that we can start to tone down the content that's being shared. Um, And it seems that the role of historians and and cultural studies experts is going to be incredibly important um, in this effort in the future to, to try and diffuse a lot of the narratives that are settling in now.
1: This The whole response to this situation is such a good example of why interdisciplinary studies are so important. And the political scientists and the cyber experts and the military experts need the historians, need the cultural studies experts and vice versa. Because what the political scientists and the, the cyber people by themselves can't understand is the extent to which these historical narratives ingrained the ways in which they've functioned in the past, the ways in which things like subjectivity are built by ordinary Russians, all they can do is, and, and I apologize to any political scientists that are listening because this is a crude rendering of what you do, but all they can do is gather numbers and make predictions and do you know, regression analysis and say, well, this is probably what this means. Whereas a cultural expert can say, well, here's exactly where this narrative comes from. When well, you do things like, so for example, I... I have been working with an organization that is breaking Russian identities down into pathways using big data, and essentially saying, well, you know, if you're Russian, you might identify Russian with being orthodox, with being macho, and therefore with violence, but we can also find examples where Russians identify Russian, orthodox, macho, and perhaps... I, I don't know, but something that's not violent, right? So whatever's at the end of that pathway might be helping others or whatever it is, right? And using the big data approach, you come up with thousands and thousands of examples of pathways, right? Now you can find those pathways and the political scientists can find those pathways, but how do you interpret what they mean, where they come from and the extent to which some of them might be more culturally meaningful than others because some of those things will turn out to be minority pursuits or may have dangers of sort of backfiring in certain ways that people who are interested in quantitative research and the numerical side of things they may not appreciate this right especially as the russian government is not just drawing on historical narratives but creating and recreating, and you use that word, this sort of fluid identity earlier, there is a fluidity in, in the way in which they reconstruct reconstructing the past and present, even as we're living it. And historians and cultural studies can use, or cultural studies experts, can, can use methods developed in these fields to understand how that's being done at lightning speed. And we can almost treat social media and this sort of data as a living archive and as a fluid archive.
0: And it seems to me that emotion is a huge factor in this, um, particularly the fact that identity is formed so closely around, you know, your familial history and in terms of war and, and conflict. So, you know you, you might have a grandfather who died at stalingrad and a grandmother who was left alone with four children and their life was incredibly difficult and sort of tinged with this this uh this grief that they had to suffer but they overcame it because it was obviously for a greater cause and that kind of emotional data can't necessarily be picked out by looking at statistics alone but has to be understood as something that has picked up speed with each generation and and really plays into what it means to both be Russian, but also what it means to be human and to understand your your ancestry and where you came from.
1: Yeah, I think so. And some of the folks I've spoken to in the last few months as part of research for my Z-Generation book are particularly keen to exploit the fact that Russians actually as well as identifying themselves as Russians, identify themselves in, in family units in some way quite strongly and often express a very strong bond with, you know, I just want to see that my family is okay or my very small community. And that offers a much more sort of humanistic perspective and possibility of ways in which you could intervene and develop links and encourage people that war is not the way to go forward and of course all of this has to be accompanied by all sorts of different things on a much bigger political level you know we need to recognize that for now russia is a real military threat and there's diplomacy that can happen and foreign policy stuff but if we're just talking about people and influencing them right then speaking to those sort of Bob Ray, who was Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, told me was, was people's just basic human needs. People want to live kindly. They want to live nice human lives where they just have some okay stuff and live in peace generally. But for some reason right now, the Russian state has managed to create a culture in which living in peace is not the way of the country. Living with violence, whether it's linguistic violence or physical violence, is the norm in that country right now. And again, that's on a spectrum, some people very extreme, some people in the middle. But this is a dangerous position to be in.
0: Thank you so much um, for coming on the podcast, Ian. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. And I'm sure I speak for everybody who's listening that this, this whole conversation has been really illuminating in terms of how... Uh, Russia is is viewing their position in this conflict. Um, just before we go, would you like to share where people can see more of your work or engage with you on social media?
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. So um, my first book, Stalingrad Lives, is out now. You can get it at all good bookstores, Amazon, whatever you want, or buy it from the publisher's website, McGill Queen's University Press. My next book, Z Generation Into the Heart of Russia's Fascist Youth, is out through Hearst in England and Oxford University Press in North America on May the 4th, 2023, but you can pre-order now. Sorry, this is very shameless. And if you would like to chat to me, um, you can follow me on Twitter at irghana, and always happy to talk to people about anything we talked about today or anything cool that other people are working on.
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much. And as always, I will leave those links in the show notes below, along with more information about the journal. So thank you very much for listening to this episode of the European Review of History podcast. Bye bye.